Chapter 19. I'm going to free her. The medicine cabinet mirror lay dead on the bathroom floor. I had turned my reflection into a spider web with a right hook. It mocked my left uppercut by smiling unaffected. A quick right jab and another uppercut, and it rained diamonds and droplets of blood on the tile and sink. The carnage crunched under my boots as I walked over to the answering machine. I pushed play. Certainly she had found a payphone by now. Surely she had formulated an escape plan. Without a doubt, it would require me as an accomplice. Hey, Carrie, it's Jenny. Give me a fast forward. Carrie, it's Amanda. Fast forward. Carrie, fast forward. Hello, darling, it's Dad. Fast forward. Fuck. I sat on the couch of our apartment, cradling my head in my hands, rubbing my eyes. I felt the blood trickle down from my knuckles to my forearms and then drip on my jeans. I was sure I'd pick the glass out at some point before work, but at that moment it just felt right. I reached for my cigarette pad and found it empty. I was drinking whiskey at noon. I had just beaten the shit out of an inanimate object in an uncontrollable burst of rage. I hurt inside and out. By all accounts, I should have been feeling pretty fucking masculine. It was only when I realized that the mirror would still be destroyed when she returned that the tears began. She would be standing there, lipstick at the ready, and there would be questions, and pretending that nothing happened would be impossible. When she waltzed in that door in a couple of minutes or a few hours or the next day, everything had to be perfect. Sure, I could sweep and mop up the wreckage, but replacing it would require some handyman prowess. If I were a real man, this whole situation would be remedied with a trip to Ace Hardware and about 15 minutes of semi-skilled labor. Of course, if I were a real man, I would have hubristic pride in a job that mattered. I would not be content to stand behind a cash register and supervise as humanity guests for air before me. My kingdom's walls would not be lined with prurient VHS tapes and filthy magazines. My calling wouldn't be to provide a safe, clean environment for sad outcasts to stroke their pathetic cocks. If I were a real man, my priorities would be family, home, and financial stability. But none of these things meant shit to me. The only things I cared about in this world were a crazy redhead and getting high. I honestly wish I could say it was in that order. The only thing I had in common with real men was their shortcomings. Like real men, I was oblivious to the way simple words or deeds could knock the shit out of an innocent bystander. Like real men, I was selfish, brutish, and unkind sometimes. One thing I knew for sure was that when there's something for a real man can't fix, he drinks, right? The notion that I picked up from movies and books, and not from the man that was supposed to have schooled me in such matters, I had only ever seen my father drunk once. Sure, I'd seen him tip a couple of Coors or Paps, Blue Ribbons, back at barbecues and softball games, but I'd only seen him shit-faced once. I was sitting at home on a Friday night at the tender age of 15, watching the Midnight Special or Don Kirshner's rock concert. I can't remember which. 
The Canadian rock band Rush was performing their kimono-wearing, double-bass drum-pounding, We Think We're Smarter Than Everyone Else Glory, when my dad came in the front door and half stumbled down the stairs in the sunken living room. He stood there looking at the screen with his head tilted to one side and one-eyed closed trying to focus. That's the ugliest broad I ever saw, he managed to say. Turn that shit off, he said. Let's have a drink. Having never drunk alcohol before or heard my father cuss, I was all in. This was exciting. We walked up the three stairs to the not-so-sunken part of the living room, and I sat at the table while he went to the kitchen and poured something from a green bottle into two highball glasses and dropped a couple of ice cubes into each. You're going to like this, kid. I took a healthy drink and decided it best not to move until the burning sulfur born dragon in my throat quit having its seizure. I stared at him, trying to make my tear-brimmed eyes convey the message. Yup. First time I drank Jameson's was in Vietnam, he said. I couldn't have been much older than you. I didn't bother correcting him. I didn't want to sour one of our few father and son bonding moments. We were out on patrol. I was in charge. We were walking down some fucking dirt road, and two Viet Cong kids come walking up the road towards us. Little kids, he said, taking a long pull off his drink. Charlie had been sending kids strapped with bombs and blowing the shit out of us. I had two kids of my own at home, for Christ's sake, he said, his voice suddenly sullen. I wanted to say about being one of them, but he wasn't talking to me anymore. He was talking to a stranger in the bar. So I gave the order to fire, he said, and cleared his throat. They just fell over. There were no blood-curdling screams or explosions. They just fell over like dominoes. He got up and walked back over to the kitchen counter and unscrewed the cap on the bottle. When we got back to camp, I had to see the sergeant and file a report. I remember he had a framed picture of Jesus and a framed picture of the commandant on his desk but none of his wife or kids. He pulled the Jamesons and two glasses out of his desk drawer after he heard the story, he said, pouring himself and topping off mine. The sergeant poured about half a shot in each class because booze was like gold out there. We didn't have any ice, of course. Then he made a toast. He lifted the glass and gestured for me to lift mine. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them, he said, deliberately slowly to avoid slurring. What's that from, I asked, finally able to break my silence. The Bible, I guess, he said. His chest began to heave and he hung his head and sobbed. I'd never seen my father cry before or since. He was our family's bearer of sad news. But through all the passings of grandpas and great-aunts and even his own mother, he remained composed and unemotional. It was his job, I suppose. I was at a loss for what to do. Mr. Cunningham never cried. Mr. Brady never cried. My interpersonal family protocol for sadness didn't run much deeper than the episode when Tiger ran away from home and I was clueless. I got up, walked around the table, and put my hand on his shoulder. Words were impossible and worthless. The only comfort I could offer was an 
awkward touch and the tears that came with the realization that my father was human. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, he whispered. It's okay, Dad. I said, knowing again that he wasn't talking to me, but a couple of kids he left on a hot, sticky dirt road 10,000 miles away many years ago. The slowest second hand I had ever seen ticked away until a full minute had passed. Then suddenly, as the wave of, of regret and shame had passed, it crushed him. It disappeared. High school, kiddo, he said, gathering the glasses and pouring the remainder of my whiskey down the kitchen sink. It's fucked up, Dad. Yeah, I bet. I clumsily pulled the little shards of mirror from my wounds. Right-handed or left-handed, it didn't matter. I stood over the tiny sink in our kitchen with Carrie's tweezers and alternately dug the glass out of my cuts, then passed my fingers under the cool running water to wash away the blood. I stopped occasionally to sanitize the lacerations with whiskey, old Western film style. A splash on my knuckles and a shot for me. Another splash on my knuckles and another shot for me. It might have hurt for all I know. I was soaked in Jameson's and fentanyl and in no position to judge. I watched the clock. I looked out the window. I rummaged through the trash can and smoked every cigarette butt down to the filter as I walked the 14 steps from one end of the room to the other over and over. I washed both dishes in the sink. I did a pristine job of making the bed until I realized that I was leaving little streaks of blood on the sheets. I wrapped each of my fingers in tissue and secured them with masking tape, one looking progressively worse until my hands resembled a badly abused bouquet of paper flowers. Mostly, I just stared at the phone that didn't ring. The girl sitting up in bed with the N.A. Big Book in her lap, praying with her new temporary sponsor, wasn't her. My Carrie was hiding in the closet, making a rope from torn hospital sheets, calculating the distance from the third floor to the ground. The girl thanking the nurse for bringing her lunch to the room wasn't her. My Carrie just threw away the tray at the door as it closed behind her. The girl slowly walking arm in arm with her physical therapist down the hallway wasn't her either. My Carrie was wondering if the emergency exits have alarms or not. The girl opening the blinds of her room with a big smile as the sun hits her face for what seems like the first time in years. No, she wasn't her. My Carrie was flirting with a janitor in the hopes that one of those keys hanging from his belt would give her access to her clothes. The girl discussing her treatment options with Dr. Bashkaram definitely wasn't her. Ma Carey was conning a Xanax script out of that asshole. And I absolutely know that the girl who requested that she get no visitors, especially me, wasn't her. Ma Carey just tore the IV needle out of her arm and ran for the elevator. I had finally reached that place where I wanted to be. I didn't care anymore. If she wanted to see me, I was easy to find. I had stumbled into the bathroom with a broom in one hand and a bottle in the other to put the final touches on my inept yet thoughtful attempt at sprucing up the place for her impending return. 
I was sure it would look great. But then as violently as I had beaten my own reflection hours before, the sadness and failure of the last 24 hours exploded from my throat and painted the floor with even more insult. In spite of my best efforts, I fell to my hands and knees with an almost religious fervor, while the remaining dismay and shame dripped from the corners of my mouth. I was empty. I was free, and I was home. I spit into the expanding puddle of bile and glass as it engulfed the palms of my hands. I laughed hard, knowing that laundry and mopping were out of the question, as time travel and God, and if this is the way she found her prince, then so be it. I rested my head on the cool toilet seat. I just needed to rest my eyes. The polite tapping on the door turned to pounding, and I tried to ignore it. Only when it occurred to me that of course she wouldn't have her keys did I get myself on my feet. She had likely been strapped to a gurney, probably screaming combinations of obscenities even I had never heard before. So sure as fuck she wouldn't have given much thought to such trivial matters as where the fuck her keys were. The absurd notion of making myself presentable was just that. You couldn't just sweep away my kind of mess under the rug. I unlocked the deadbolt, both excited and horrified. Babe, you look terrible. We're calling you in sick. Kelly Thompson stood in the doorway, her eyes moist with concern for a dear friend. Fuck. Whatever this was, it was not going to be a good thing.